Good afternoon. It's Friday the 13th of May 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we've also got Alex Thompson and Vanessa Bailey with us as well. Which, so this is going to be an action-packed programme. Uh, let's get straight on, Patrick, with what's going on in Ukraine then. Well, we'll just do a little update of the situation. A lot of people have uh, asked us, uh, how is the, the conflict going? How's the war actually going? Uh, we're going to bring up here, this is from uh, Live Map. Uh, you can go check this out online if you want to see the original source. So this is basically the Live Map of where things are standing at the moment uh, in Ukraine. You can see Crimea down there at the bottom, uh, Donbass there on the right hand uh, side. The areas in red are uh, operationally, you could say, under Russian uh, uh, control. Uh, and then you can see where some of the battles and outbreaks are happening uh, in the sort of red circles you'll see in certain areas there's uh, activity uh, going on here. So who are the uh, parties of this conflict here? The Russian Federation uh, and the other side is effectively Ukraine and NATO. We're putting those two together, Mike, because I think at this point uh, it's safe to say uh, that this isn't just Ukraine and Russia. So we're including NATO there as one of the uh, combatant uh, parties. So here's, these are the areas you need to look at here. Kherson, Mike, uh, this is moving up towards Odessa, uh, very close to Odessa there above Crimea. That is under Russian control, Russian public administration, Russian cell phone coverage. Uh, it's effectively being absorbed um, into the Russian world, uh, possibly as an autonomous republic in the interim. Who knows, uh, possibly later part of the Russian Federation, too early to tell, but it's not going back, Mike, it, by all intents and purposes. I see a lot of Western pundits talking about Ukraine retaking these areas. It, it really, I don't really see that ever happening, not, not in this conflict, uh, not at this time uh, on the timeline here. Mariupol, again, in the Western media is calling this a siege. They're reporting Mariupol as if the, the city's still under siege. It's not. Uh, the, the fighting is uh, confined to a very small area as of stall plant, which we'll show you in a little bit. Uh, so this is basically under, you could say, police control, uh, the area of Mariupol. It's not necessarily a, a, a military uh, theater in the same sense that some of the other uh, areas are. In other words, it is mainly under Russian control, except for these last holdouts really in the very, very small area of the Azovstal plant, but the Western media is saying it's still up for grabs, which I think is complete, you know, you could say that's absolutely disinformation uh, on the part of Western media. And then up here are Kharkov. Um, this is uh, getting a lot of press right now. The Daily Mail reported that Russia was pushed back to its border. That looks like fake news. Uh, it's, you could say this area around the city there, 40% really is under Russian control. The rest uh, is fighting with Ukrainian forces controlling the other uh, half, you could say, and it's ongoing. Uh, and here, this is the important part, which we're going to talk about. You could call this uh, the cauldron, or this is this part of Donbass, just there to the west of the borders of Donetsk and Lugansk. This is very important, and we'll show you uh, in a minute. Let's take a look at that Donbass cauldron. This is zooming in close here, uh, and these are the areas that you need to pay very close uh, attention to here. Uh, this is uh, Severodonetsk. Uh, and then Pop, uh, Papasnaya down here. The Russians are in control of Papasnaya. So whatever the Western media says, um, it, Russia has operational control. Russian forces, DPR forces, LPR forces uh, together have operational control over this area. So what, what's happening here? This is what's happening. Look at the blue areas. You can just see the blue shades. 
Uh, these are Ukrainian armed force positions, ostensibly. And the red arrows, those are Russian military forces on the move. The gold area you can see is more or less, you could say, uh, under Russian uh, and DPR control. But here's what's happening. Uh, these two moves that we've just highlighted here potentially could split uh, this cauldron. And that would isolate the Ukrainian forces uh, there on the east side. That would be a game changer. That's exactly where things are headed right now. So I'm personally, Mike, quite frankly, shocked at the Western media coverage that they're in total denial right now. They're putting up all sorts of flares and distractions to, to keep people from this. I mean, why not report how things are actually going on the ground? They seem to be reticent to do so. And qu quite frankly, I'm shocked that that's, this is the case. Uh, well, nothing, nothing was really surprising anymore uh, on this. Let's just uh, quickly move on then to sanctions. And here is, uh, well, the latest graphic from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Uh, Putin's network sanctioned. Uh, so Foreign Secretary Liz Truss uh, today is announcing fresh sanctions on Putin's wallet, in quotes, of family and friends, uh, those whom he rewards with state positions and wealth in return for their underlying loyalty is how that's described by the FCDO. Uh, official records list modest adult, uh, assets sorry, for Putin, including uh, a small flat in St. Petersburg, uh, two Soviet-era cars from the 1950s, a trailer and a small garage. Uh, in reality, Putin relies on his network of family, childhood friends and selected elite uh, who have benefited from his rule and in turn support his lifetime. Uh, their reward is influence over the affairs of the Russian state, and that goes far beyond their formal positions. Uh, today, sanctions will hit this cabal who owe Putin their wealth. So here we're talking about uh, Alina Kabaeva, who's a retired Olympic gymnast. Uh, she's risen to become chair of the board of the National Media Group. Uh, then we've got uh, Anna uh, Zatsapolina, uh, who's grandmother of Anna Kabaeva um, and uh, associate of, uh, of others and longstanding Putin associate. Uh, and then we've got uh, the former first lady of the Russian Federation, and the ex-wife, who is also, by the way, the ex-wife of uh, Putin, of course. Um, and since her divorce from Putin in 2014, she's benefited from preferential business relationships with state-owned entities. So she's being sanctioned. Uh, Igor Putin, who's the first cousin uh, of Putin uh, and a Russian businessman. Uh, and then we've got uh, Mikhail Putin, who's a Russian businessman and a relative of Vladimir Putin. Then we've got uh, Roman Putin, who's the first cousin once removed of Vladimir Putin. It gets better. And uh, the list goes on. I mean, there's the, there's the, a couple more names on this list and then uh, significantly more names uh, uh, in addition. So uh, I don't know what you think of that, but it seems it just is getting more ridiculous on a daily basis. Lots and lots of companies are, have a state-owned interest, Mike, especially after the sanctions in 2014. That's one of the big shifts that Russia did. Uh, in order to rescue the economy, the state had to come in and bail out so many of these corporations. And in the process, they did kind of absorb them with some part of state ownership with dividends and so forth. So you might as well sanction everybody uh, in the whole country of Russia because pretty much everybody's got some link to some state-owned entity. It's kind of ridiculous at this point. Uh, I don't really understand what the general strategy is other than it just sounds like a vendetta at this point. Well, that seems how it is to me. Uh, maybe we could bring Alex and Vanessa on. Alex, first of all, what, what are your thoughts on the, the sanctions regime? I haven't heard of even tin pot dictators in the real third world belt 
um, having their first and second cousins being sanctioned for blood relations and alleged business ties. This is taking things to a new level. Um, I think maybe you were too gentlemanly to mention it, but the Western cabals claim, we hear that they are now talking about the cabal in Russia, but it's often used about our rulers, that word, in the West. Uh, the claim is that Alina Kabaeva, since she was a 24-year-old gymnast well over a decade ago, has been Putin's love interest. It's even claimed that she's married him in some secret remarriage ceremony. Uh, but this hasn't come out publicly, so you know the usual diplomatic and international law norms apply. Uh, as with the Elysee Palace, when uh, President Hollande was being asked every day of the week, who is the first lady today, sir? If he doesn't say, this is my first lady married or not, a president doesn't have a first lady. It's a diplomatic um, and ceremonial post. Uh, so if they're claiming Kabaeva is de facto Mrs. Putina, uh, then they ought to say so. Uh, but at, at present, they're, you know, they're, they're committing a gross injustice uh, against the norms of diplomacy. Indeed. Uh, Vanessa, have you got any thoughts on this? No, only that I think uh, the, the the other time that we have seen this level of um, targeting of relatives of a uh, leader of a sovereign nation is in Syria, of course. The ramping up of sanctions against uh, members of President Assad's family, whether they're living in Syria or abroad, um, has been a, a, a sort of recent tactic and strategy of the sanctions here. So I guess that, in a, in a sense, set the precedent, and that's now being used against um, Putin and, and his close uh, family and confidants. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Patrick, let's move on then uh, to Sputnik. And of course, uh, this morning, uh, we had a look to see if we could see this article on Sputnik. And of course, that's blocked, as we mentioned uh, a couple in the, of days ago. In the UK, yes, because the UK. of sanctions. Yes. So yeah, the UK has sanctioned uh, RT.com. Sputnik and most major Russian uh, state-affiliated media outlets. So here's one article, and we thought we'd put this up because it, it's incredibly brilliant, actually. This is a, uh, an interview with an American academic uh, who just happens to be from dun, 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 Russia. So let's take a look at uh, Vladimir Goldstein here, who is really one of the brilliant uh, uh, humanist uh, commentators here at Brown University, Ivy League School, that's Professor uh, Vladimir Goldstein, and uh, let's take a look at what he says. The whole idea of fake news or disinformation is highly dubious. Any complex event has a multitude of manifestations and causes. There is no single set of eyes that can see and register at all. Uh, as St. Paul observed, in the affairs of this world, we see through a glass darkly. Consequently, it is highly erroneous for one side to claim that they see clearly, whereas another side produces only fake news. Uh, and again, I just remind people, this is a brilliant comment. It's a great interview if you're able to see it. Uh, however you're able to see it, we'll, we'll, we'll aim to republish this uh, at 21st Century Wire. Uh, but he goes on here. Uh, Besides myopia and the self-defeated dimension of censorship, one should highlight two obvious facts uh, related to censorship and dismissal of alternative interpretations as propaganda. And he goes on to basically explain this is a logical fallacy, the whole concept of disinformation. Uh, and again, you can't read this uh, if you're living in the UK. It's been censored because according to the British government, anything on printed or visible on any of these uh, Russian media outlets is Putin propaganda and dangerous disinformation. 
and somehow helping the war effort. And here you have one of the top academics uh, in, in his field uh, in the United States at an Ivy League uh, institution in America who's being interviewed. So, so don't you think his opinion or his viewpoint is worth listening to? Well, it's, it's the wrong opinion, though, so of course it has to be shut down. Well, it's not necessarily it's the wrong opinion per se, but they're saying it's, it's being published at the wrong source. Mm. Uh, so, and, and I think this is hugely dangerous. We, we all know, Mike, this is a slippery slope. It, it is. It indeed. doesn't stop with Russian websites. Now they've opened this gate. They can keep going with pretty much any content at some point in the future that the state deems to be disinformation. Hugely dangerous. People need to think about that. Um, well, uh, Liz Truss, of course, was in uh, Germany uh, at the G7 meeting and uh, very concerned about disinformation and sanctions. She wants to see much more uh, shutting down of uh, uh, what she would describe as pro-Russian narratives uh, and many more sanctions. So she's calling on people to go further and faster in the G7. So let's just have a look at what she said uh, after the meeting. I'm here at the G7 in Germany. It's very important at this time that we keep up the pressure on Vladimir Putin by supplying more weapons to Ukraine, by increasing the sanctions. G7 unity has been vital during this crisis to protect freedom and democracy, and we'll continue to work together to do just that. Um, Alex, is she protecting freedom and democracy? <laughs> Sounds like a head girl speech, doesn't it, Mike? Um, <laughs> no, it's it, is she the spokeswoman for the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, or is she is she the spokeswoman for the G seven? Has Britain actually at this stage captured the the foreign and defence policies? of these nations. It does increasingly look like, as we've been reporting in recent episodes, uh, Britain is uh, at general staff and political level talking about NATO being obsolete in Trumpian terms almost, um, although they threw a hissy fit at the time when Trump said it first, uh, and that they're, they're proclaiming that NATO is too too cautious, as, as David Scott coined last week on the show, uh, too missile hesitant. Sorry, Alex, it's, it's the hesitant word that's, that's really important here. NATO's being hesitant. And this, of course, is invoking the whole COVID uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, tr trope and implying that NATO being a bit slow and hesitant are equivalent to people that are refusing to take the jab, for example. Yes, and every policy vector that globalism has foisted upon the world with Britain as its laboratory in recent years has gone this way. Um, we will re recall the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, IndyRef1, as it's now called, because there's uh, constant maundering on about reruns of it. Only a third of the Scots actually want it. Um, but at that stage, the, the slogan was not, are you for independence, but you yes yet. That was actually in the wake of the narrow loss by the independence advocates. And now on Welsh Twitter, we see a lot of uh, talk of the same thing. Uh, you know, just as people are being tempted into sexual perversion under the idea of being bi-curious, so now uh, the sceptics about uh, how a Welsh government would do independent uh, are being invited to become independence curious. So you could also say that they're, they're independence hesitant. You know, the, the idea is that the plebs will come round to this way of thinking sooner or later. It's just a matter of how much psychological cajoling we have to apply. Um, so in order to deal with the hesitance, uh, Britain seems to be going its own way. And we'll come on to Finland and Sweden in a second. But before we get to that, uh, let's have a look and see what uh, 
they are talking about with respect to US-EU defense cooperation? Here is none other than the Massachusetts senior Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, meeting the EU's ambassador to the United States, uh, as this is being used as the uh, image material for a piece in Defense News uh, out of Washington entitled, The Pentagon Pitches Law Changes to Enable US-EU Defense Cooperation. Now, there's this small matter of the US Constitution and the Founding Fathers' uh, warnings against uh, foreign entanglements, uh, which, of course, is very seri seriously respected, particularly by the Senate, the guardian of US foreign policy. And, of course, it comes from uh, English constitutional history because the armed forces since the Glorious Revolution have to be continually re-voted re into existence. Uh, at least every year in the past, and now, alas, only once every quinquennium, every term. But anyway, the uh, the shocker here is that the, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense is actually circulating draft legislative material in the way that a lobbyist would in the past, and uh, saying to the Congress, this is the uh, language that we would like to see. So we'll see a bit of detail of that. So the uh, the covering um, slide there talks about enabling U.S.-EU defense cooperation, and if we move that uh, forward one, I'll do that. Um, there we are. Uh, the United States, we're told, must be able to pursue information sharing and potential cooperative projects, i.e. they haven't been formed yet, with the European Union and member states of the EU to maintain blah, 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 reads the legislative proposal published on the Pentagon website. So, Mike and Pat, this is the executive proposing legislation in the country that champions the separation of powers perhaps more than any other. And uh, we, we see that the document talks about potential procurement of articles or services. So in other words, this is unlawful as things stand in the United States. Uh, the proposal goes on, um, or rather the, the, the write-up goes on, that this congressional push, it isn't actually, it's a, a Pentagon push, essentially lays the domestic groundwork, this is the, the defense news cover of it, to, it allows Washington to have a hand in the EU's emerging weapons development efforts. And, uh, of course, we see at the bottom a bit of uh, uh, noddy speak. The US is not a member of the EU, says the, uh, says the Pentagon, uh, just in case any Congress people and senators were unaware of this. You never know these days. Meanwhile, Defence News says work on a crucial pact between the Pentagon and the European Defence Agency remains unfinished. So they're supposed to have had an administrative arrangement between the Pentagon and the Triangle, Brussels' um, fake Pentagon, basically, uh, since last year. Uh, but it hasn't actually been signed yet. Uh, the hesitation was that the EU member states that still have serious domestic uh, defence industries, notably France, were worried that any legislation and treaties that went through would force the um, uh, Europeans to open themselves up to the Northrop Grumman's and the Lockheed Martins of this world, the, uh, the big American contractors that would take things over. So th there we are. We're getting the US effectively being seen by the Pentagon now uh, as a, a, a would-be candidate for European Defence Union. Uh, the, the, the mention of NATO in this, which was dominant, it was the cart before the horse, or rather the horse before the cart a few years ago, that switched round now. The cart is before the horse, and all the talk is about EU defence, even when the US is involved, not NATO. Yeah, Alex has brought up the main point here. It, it seems like the uh, the US is hedging uh, its bets here for the future. No one knows what the uh, future of NATO is for certain, but EU defence is certainly on the horizon. When Alex said they're acting like lobbyists, he's absolutely right. They are lobbyists. 
behind the Pentagon is the uh, military industrial complex, the defense giants. And if you can see what they've done with the weapons into Ukraine, uh, they're getting all of the European countries, especially Eastern European countries, to dump all of their old weapons into Ukraine and then backfill them with brand new state of the art and ideally uh, US manufactured weapons. Those come with maintenance teams, technical teams, US staff, like the Patriot missile system, for instance, that's all US staff, technical teams, same in Israel as well. It's US managed in Israel out of Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, so, and then also all the maintenance contracts going forward, the upgrades. So really the US would have operational control over European defense if it was allowed uh, to basically get the lion's share of that market. But the point here is, uh, or at least one point here is that this is all outside the auspices of NATO. And so what is going on with NATO? So uh, Boris yesterday went to uh, Finland and Sweden. Uh, let's just have a look at what he had to say. Today, I've been seeing some of our closest Nordic friends and partners, Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson of uh, Sweden and President Sali Ninisto of, of Finland. And what we signed are two solemn declarations about our mutual uh, security and defense. And uh, what these will enable us to do is they're not only important commitments uh, to uh, come to each other's uh, protection upon request in the event of attack, but they're also the foundation stones for us uh, to create uh, new defense and security partnerships, whether it's on uh, tackling cyber warfare together sharing more intelligence together, uh, common defence uh, procurement, more joint exercises. Uh, there is a huge range of things that we're now going to do together as uh, Europe's security architecture changes and it becomes ever more necessary for like-minded democracies to stand together to defend our values, uh, to defend freedom and make it clear that we will not accept anywhere the changing of boundaries uh, in Europe by force. So people in the chat box, uh, once again, noticed the music, uh, which is just, I mean, it, the, the level of depravity that we're seeing from number 10 Downing Street in the way that they're packaging this material at the moment, I just think it's, it's despicable. But anyway, they're talking about uh, uh, joint expeditionary force. This is all outside NATO. So this is, uh, you know, Britain saying that we're going to come right into the rescue of Sweden and Finland uh, if through the, the auspices of this new agreement. And Sweden and Finland need to come uh, and ride to our rescue if we get into trouble as well. Entangling alliances. It, exactly, exactly. So this is all sort of pre-First World War kind of... Uh, Power politics. That's ...being what, built. Yeah. Okay, but in the meantime, uh, Finnish leaders here uh, are, are confirming support for NATO application. And remember that it was, you heard it here first, folks, because uh, uh, we were making the point quite a number of weeks ago now that, that Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were all visiting uh, at different times, Sweden and Finland, uh, really to drive forward the idea of them getting into NATO. But in the meantime, they haven't waited. They've gone ahead and set up this, uh, this, uh, these agreements. So anyway, Finland and Sweden looking like they're going to join NATO. The Russians, as you would expect, uh, looking at this extremely carefully. Uh, and uh, Alex, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, obviously Russia is not going to take this lying down. Um, so just, uh, you know, what do you think uh, the response is going to be from them? 
probably quite a logistical, quite a physical response of moving large numbers of troops and support equipment up to the northwest, and probably also quite a large naval and uh, uh, aerial uh, response, given that this is uh, two Scandinavian countries. I know Finland is not technically geographically Scandinavia, but uh, in the Scandinavian area uh, that in Finland's case have, um, okay, well, neither of them have got Arctic sea access, but uh, it provides more bulk for Norway, which does have Arctic sea access to to form a a bridgehead, really, against uh, Russia in the uh, the Murmansk Sea area. Uh, I would note on the language as well that uh, Johnson was carefully briefed to stress the words solemn declaration uh, as usual, when novel words are in- inserted, it's not a, an instrument of international law. The hierarchy is uh, there's a convention, a treaty, a protocol, and an accord. Those four are international law instruments. Uh, a declaration, a memorandum, or a pact, if it's multilateral, are not known to international law. They're just people playing around. Okay, thank you for that. Well, you know, as we said, uh, obviously, Finland and Sweden looking at joining NATO. So the whole argument from Russia about encirclement uh, starts to look uh, a bit more valid than maybe you know the, the, the argument from NATO that it was not true doesn't seem to stack up anymore. But uh, of course, who's next on the list? That's going to be China. And the NATO 2030 agenda um, is very much looking at the South China Sea and China. But it's, we start to see headlines like this, uh, Patrick, uh, and it's looking like the same kind of game is being played by the West with respect to China. So this is the Asia Times and the headline is Eye on China, South Korea joins NATO Cyber Defense Unit. And here we've got the Japan Times, uh, Japan to attend NATO summit in June. Uh, and in both these cases, there are hints that those two countries in particular, South Korea and China, are very, very interested in joining NATO in the shorter term. Well, more likely we're, we're looking at Taiwan as being the sort of the main set piece right. uh, there. And they'd love to uh, create the uh, Cassius Belli of, of Taiwan and turn it uh, as part of the Article 5 trap, uh, the Article 5 war trap. That's what Article 5 has basically become. It's been weaponized uh, by NATO member states now. And when we say NATO, let's be honest, we're talking about the United States and Britain and everybody else is really along for the ride and will sort of do what they're told. Yes, sir, three bags full. That's what NATO is. Mm. Uh, and so that's the way to look at this is a provocative action uh, by NATO because of course, as Alex pointed out uh, very astutely, you know, this is all done outside of international law. When has NATO ever acted in accordance to any international law. I cannot remember a time when it actually did. Uh, Indeed. So let's talk about NATO and exercises and uh, joint readiness and all this kind of thing. Uh, Let's uh, let's put this on screen. So here's a nice image uh, from the Ministry of Defense this morning. Uh, This is uh, North Macedonia. Uh, We've got some more uh, images because they were uh, the the pathfinders were uh, the first in taking part in this exercise. It's going to be three and a half thousand soldiers altogether, six NATO countries training together in North Macedonia. Uh, and uh, this uh, first, uh, these images here coming from uh, 16th Air uh, Assault Brigade combat team uh, who are making these so-called halo jumps uh, as the first steps in the, uh, in the uh, exercises. Um, so uh, that's that. Uh, but um, what we have here, and, and we have a little bit of video here to, to just sort of top this uh, this little section off. So if we have a look at um, uh, the uh, video uh, number two, that's the one. Let's have a look at this because just listen to the language that's being used uh, on Good Morning Britain here. 
This major NATO exercise during the summer isn't just about the Paris, it's about displaying power to leaders like Putin. Helicopters dropping heavy artillery, attacking with American Apaches. And with thousands of ground troops. This was all watched by the North Macedonia president. No doubt Sweden and Finland who were considering joining NATO. Word. So we're, we're showing off to Putin. We're, we're demonstrating our part of Putin. And Putin must be shaking in his boots, but nonetheless... I, that, I was impressed by the press tent. The pims and lemonade on the side with the canapé is very nice. Nice day out. Very impressive. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, in the meantime, uh, in Romania, the French and Polish, uh, there's a, a NATO multinational battle, battle group that's been formed in, in Romania. This is one of four new uh, multinational battle groups, uh, one in Bulgaria, one in Hungary, one in Romania, one in Slovakia. Uh, and this, of course, is all about de-escalating. Patrick, I'm being sarcastic, as you'll appreciate, because every time uh, we start pushing, creating new battle groups right on Russia's borders, holding exercises, whether it be in North Macedonia or Romania or wherever it happens to be, this is all about trying to maintain pressure in, in, on, in Russia, with Russia. And of course, the problem here is what possible response can Russia have other than to you know, push back? I, I think there's a lot of this is noise, Mike. There's, they're, we're in a sort of the, the noise mode constantly. They need to be doing something. Uh, look, the, the NATO countries, mainly led by the US and Britain, are so deeply invested and they've dragged all of the European countries in with them. They're so deeply invested in this. They need for uh, public appearances, they need to keep doing things. They need to look like that they're somehow winning or that they could potentially uh, change the course of this conflict. And the more we look at it, we showed you that map at the beginning of the program. You know, Russia has just uh, increased uh, the area in which it's holding there. And you know, the longer this conflict goes on, the longer the West tells Zelensky, don't negotiate. And the longer people like uh, Josef Borrell in the EU say, there'll be no peace, this has to be won militarily, that means that Ukraine is going to lose more and more territory over time because the security calculus changes over time. And also the people living in those areas, their priorities will change as well. You effectively have a failed state in Kiev. The institutions of that country have failed They've lost a tremendous amount of sovereignty right now, and it seems like all of their military and political operations are being micromanaged by Western countries. Okay, that's a fact, and that has massive ramifications uh, in the long run when you're talking about, you know, w where these territories belong. Can they be repatriated back to Ukraine? I'm afraid they can't, and they will lose more the longer they carry on with this policy of fight down to the last Ukrainian. Okay, and where does that leave uh, Ukraine with respect to the EU then? Well, this is the big carrot, isn't it? This is the big hope. And a lot of what Ukraine is in the Western mind is it's all about selling hope, the hope, the dream, the Maidan, the Euro Maidan. And so here's this comment you uh, might have seen, everybody's seen. Macron, and he's not alone, others have said, it's gonna take a long time for Ukraine. You can't have this fast track uh, system of membership. And by the way, what's left of Ukraine, if they leave this war uh, status quo right now to go on for another eight, 10, 12 months, you might see half of the country remaining without a coastline uh, along the Black Sea. So here's Macron saying this. Now, this, this didn't go over very well, as you can imagine, uh, in Kiev. And then this happened. 
uh, just a couple of days ago, Ukraine cuts off Russian natural gas pipelines supplying Europe. So the transit pipelines, they've shut it, they've shut it down. This was not done by Russia, um, uh, despite what some Western media outlets are reporting and you know, injecting in the fake news talking points that somehow Russia's done this. Ukraine claims that it's because these areas can't be staffed because of the conflict. But when you look at where the transit areas are, Mike, they're not in the middle of conflict zones. There's no reason why. And this isn't the first time Ukraine's done this, by the way. This happened previously, I believe, in 2014 mm. and 2015. And so that threw their relationship into turmoil and they tried to patch it up recently. And then they have the gas flowing and now they've gone and done this. Is this Kiev's retribution to Europe? Or for not providing weapons fast enough, you mean? For not providing weapons or saying that they're not going to get their uh, EU or NATO membership fast-tracked. I mean, you're dealing with a desperate regime right now in Kiev. And just take a look at some of the statements that they've made recently. And this is going to make matters worse. Russia has just, apologies, RT.com. This is Russian disinformation. Full disclaimer for everybody. And this is banned in Britain. But we think it's important to show because this is the actual state position of the government of the Russian Federation. So this is the problem with censorship again, is it keeps the public from being fully informed. So we're going to inform you here. Russia's changed its position on U uh, Ukraine's EU bid. Mike, this is massive. And they've done so uh, really in reaction to a number of statements, including from Burrell from the EU himself, saying that there's only a military solution to this conflict. So before Russia said, well, no, NATO's a non-starter, you've got to be a neutral country, but we, we don't necessarily have a problem with EU membership in the future. Mm -hmm. They've now changed their position on this. This is big, okay? So this means that they're looking at the EU, they might even be looking ahead at Europe, European defense configurations as well. And that, that could be just as much as they should be. of a threat to Russian yeah. security as NATO is. So this is big, so this changes the calculus. Where's the hope and change for the people of Ukraine? If you take away these, these dreams on the horizon that the West have constantly been selling yeah. the people in Ukraine uh, and the Eurovision, as it were, no pun intended, that's tomorrow, the Eurovision Song Contest. And who's going to win that? Uh, Ukraine's a two to five favorite. I would have thought so. <laughs> so big money, odds on, Ukraine's going to win. So this is big. So where is this going to leave uh, your, Ukraine's future? Mm -hmm. A, what's left of Ukraine, and B, you know, what can they sell? What dream can they sell to the people uh, of that country from the West? It's, it's very unclear right now. Yes. So that takes us then on to uh, uh, Zelensky himself. Well, here, he, apologies. It just happened to pause on this part of the video when we took the <laughs> screenshot. He's, uh, he's upset. He's claiming here, uh, and this sounds familiar, it reminds me of Syria. Uh, Zelensky's claiming Russia has destroyed 570 healthcare facilities. That's almost as many hospitals that are in Idlib, by the way. I'm joking. Uh, and so Zelensky's saying that uh, in addition to this, 101 hospitals have been completely destroyed by the Russian uh, Federation. Uh, probably would Vanessa might be able to weigh in on this particular topic. Uh, absolutely. So I'm going to get Vanessa to comment on this in one second. But uh, what the point here is uh, we have uh, claims that hospitals are being destroyed and so on. But the problem is that we've got military operations happening in these locations. And we've got, so the military using civilian infrastructure uh, effectively as a shield. Now, I just wanted to bring this on screen because this was a, a tweet that Elon Musk put out uh, a couple of days ago um, saying that he had received this message from 
the Russian, I think this is the Russian head of the Russian Space Agency, the head of the Russian Space Agency rather. And so we'll just do a quick translation on this. Uh, from the testimony, testimony of the captured commander of the 36th Marine Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Colonel Dmitry uh, Kormenkov, uh, it uh, turns out that the internet terminals of Elon Musk's Starlink satellite company were delivered to the militants of the Nazi Azov Battalion uh, and the Ukrainian Marines in Mariupol by military helicopters. According to our information, the delivery of the Starlink equipment was carried out by the Pentagon. Uh, Elon Musk thus is involved in supplying the fascist forces in Ukraine with military communication equipment. And for this, Elon, you will be held accountable like an adult, no matter how much you'll play the fool. Uh, Elon Musk uh, then tweeted out as afterwards saying that uh, uh, the use of the word Nazi was inappropriate or not quite accurate in this case. Hmm. Uh, but he also said this, uh, that there are no angels in war. So he seems to be justifying the fact that Starlink equipment has been given to Azov. That's an admission. It seems to be. I yes. would read it as an admission. Yes. By Elon Musk. Uh, and he went on then later on to tweet this, if I die under mysterious circumstances, it'd be nice knowing you. So he's implying that uh, he's at risk as a result of the fact that the Russians have found this out. But what the point I want to make here is that, of course, we've been talking on a number of occasions about Britain's equivalent of Starlink, which is uh, satellite uh, swarms launched by OneWeb, uh, which is UK government owned. Uh, and the comment from Ben Wallace saying, uh, we will ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management processes, considering how we share defense space capabilities and outputs. And this is UK government policy now to use civilian infrastructure for military purposes. This is why, one of the reasons anyway, why Huawei has been denied access to sell their products into the UK's 5G networks because they intend, the British government intends to use the UK's 5G networks for military and intelligence services use, as well as obviously civilian communications. Dual use is the Dual key. Dual use. That's the key word, dual use. This policy has been discussed for many, many years. We've talked about this. This is November 2015, uh, when uh, Federico Mogherini and Jens Stoltenberg were t at the European Defence Agency conference. Uh, we're talking about the merging of civilian and military infrastructure. And then in 2017, a couple of years later, here's uh, Rose Gottmuller, uh, from NATO talking in 2017, we need to break down the silos between military and civilian institutions. Uh, and this, again, uh, part of the UK's uh, integrated operating concept because they're talking about, uh, well, we'll come on to this in a second, but before we come on to this, uh, Vanessa, the point here is uh, that we have seen on the ground in Syria and in Ukraine, uh, the, the use of civilian infrastructure by military combatants uh, in some kind of some kind, and we've got the policy coming through the British government and through the EU and NATO of uh, merging civilian and military infrastructures. And in those circumstances, then everybody becomes a target. It's no longer possible for uh, a, a for any military force to target only uh, military forces on the opposing side because they're occupying civilian spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a meme uh, that I actually put out on Twitter, which was called the Nazi sandwich, which showed that in an apartment block at the bottom, you would have, for example, their heavy artillery. Then you would have a layer of uh, civilian residents, uh, then another layer maybe of snipers. And this would go on to the roof, where, of course, then you would also have uh, snipers. Um, this same policy was deployed in Syria, as Patrick quite rightly pointed out, 
And of course, you know, this, this wonderful uh, hyperbole over the number of hospitals in a specific area. As you mentioned in, in Idlib, I think I did uh, a survey on the actual um, documentation of public and private hospitals in Idlib, and it was a tiny percentage of those that were being claimed by the White Helmets. And considering the fact that the White Helmets, the Syria White Helmets, are providing assistance and information management um, advice to Ukraine, one can expect Zelensky to be exaggerating numbers of hospitals and civilian infrastructure that have been damaged by the Russian forces. Yes, th thanks for that. And uh, Patrick, then coming back to Elon Musk for a second. And Azovstal? Well, the, the, the Azovstal plant, this is where the holdouts are. And, and so we, we can assume that they've been aided by Elon Musk's uh, company, Starlink, with the technology for various usage, you could say. Um, so here's one of the militants here. This is Sergei Volin. We showed you a uh, 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 call sign Kalinia last week uh, with the beard. And this is another character here. He's calling out to Elon Musk. Uh, to uh, you know, invoke his better angels, as it were, or they're looking for Elon as their guardian uh, angel. Let's take a look at this tweet here. This is uh, Volin. He's saying, uh, people, Elon Musk, people say you come from another planet to teach people to believe in the impossible. Our planets are next to each other, as I live where it is nearly impossible to survive. Help us get out of Azovstal uh, to a mediating country, third-party country, he means. Uh, if not you then who? Give me a hint. And so he's tweeting out here. So th they're living in this bizarre postmodernist world where militants, and particularly the, the Azov battalions, are victims of, of warfare. Yes. So they, they've refused to surrender. They've been offered uh, green corridors constantly over the last uh, almost going on two months now uh, in total. They've had the opportunity. They've chosen not to. Okay, so now that they're calling out to the international community, help us exfiltrate from this uh, this nightmare because we otherwise we're going to serve prison time uh, for war crimes uh, by the DPR, uh, Donetsk People's Republic, for instance. So um, here's another one here. He went on to Sky. Uh, this is, uh, he's got the eye patch, sort of the more hipster look. Um, he's getting a lot of airtime in UK media, Ilya uh, Samolienko. Okay, and he's, he's quite erudite, very well spoken. So the media is trying to basically turn him into a type of a, a representative or a mascot uh, for the Azov battalions uh, stranded at Mariupol. So what they're doing here is creating a narrative. Mm -hmm. They're creating mythology. Um, and this is absolutely uh, necessary um, in order to sell this conflict to the West. This happens within the Western media sphere, okay? Much like Banna of Aleppo and people like this were used, all these caricatures and avatars were created during the Syrian conflict to keep the support coming, to keep the politicians on point in the West, to keep, to keep the arms flowing, keep the money and the NGOs and all the various uh, third sector projects they've had going. So again, they're, 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 they're trying this and it's failing. It's, I think it's really failing miserably um, because everybody knows it's war, unfortunately, uh, and you either surrender or you're gonna fight to the death. Zelensky, Kiev has says their orders have don't surrender. So they're clearly trying to, and they're using the term martyr now. So they're, they're trying to create martyrs here. Uh, hmm. You know, for what, um, you know, it, the, what's the payoff going to be? Loss of territory for Kiev. 
Uh, well, one of the other players uh, in Syria, of course, uh, very much pushing the propaganda game was the White Helmets. Vanessa, and last week when you were on, uh, you were highlighting the efforts to create, uh, well, White Helmets potentially in other parts, uh, in Ukraine, sorry, and, and in other parts of the world. But you highlighted this particular article, and the head, this was about Mr. Gifford, and the headline was, Former Fighter in Syria Launches Medical Mission to Treat Victims in Ukraine. That sounds like a very positive headline, but the headline changed following your... Uh, your appearance on UK Column News. Yeah, um, if you can put on the new one where it actually says, I think, British mercenary plans white helmets operation for Ukraine. So uh, that came up almost immediately after the UK Column News. So I'm guessing somebody was watching and <laughs> altered the headline to, to, to be a lot more truthful, actually. Uh, but uh, calling it an operation in that way is uh, yeah. t changes the 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 slant of the of the article completely because the original headline was very positive. That implies something quite different. Well, I mean, and also it implied, um, you know, this this kind of maverick guy, as Patrick was saying, you know, these cartoon characters was heading off to Ukraine to set up an organization, grassroots organization. Um, to help the victims of the Ukrainian war. And of course, that automatically means the victims of the Russian invasion. Um, and then changing it to British mercenary, uh, which, which has a more negative slant, and white helmet operation. So, you know, clearly kind of aligning itself with our, our um, report saying that this is a British uh, Foreign Office and Intelligence and Security Agency's operation um, being repeated inside Ukraine. Yes, okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on to uh, uh, the... On the subject, the unsavory subject of mercenaries right. uh, stranded in there, Ukrainian Foreign Legion. Here's the latest uh, here, we'll put this up on screen. Uh, this is one gentleman here, and he's come and speaking to the press. He's back, apparently, I guess he survived the nightmare uh, in Ukraine. It was a suicide mission says this British mercenary life on the front lines for foreign fighters in Ukraine. According to Matthew Robinson, uh, a UK mercenary from the Georgian National Legion, approximately 70% of the foreign mercenaries who came to Ukraine have already returned. So the dream has faded apparently for 70% or they've just, the pennies dropped, the light bulb's gone off and they've realized that uh, it's not really a good endeavor. Let's look at what else he says. And here's the key bit, Mike. Um, they are being sent on suicidal attacks without proper weapons or uniforms, probably, or equipment. We heard stories of them buying their own ammunition, uh, not equipped, and basically cannon fodder, yeah. uh, especially the foreigners. So I guess the word's getting around. So that's the latest on, on that. There's quite a few of these uh, British personalities that have come uh, into the press either on our side of the lines or uh, who have been captured. Mm -hmm. One of those who's been captured is this gentleman here. Uh, his name is uh, Andrew Hill, British mercenary in Ukraine. He's in the Donetsk People's Republic. So he's captured by uh, the DPR here. He's made these videos. This is Rudenko, uh, one of the uh, Russian uh, independent or uh, affiliated, I guess, with the media. Or, uh, and so the Alex did show uh, one of the, the videos that was made with him. Yeah, there's a couple of interviews uh, yes. he's done. So, you know, you could say, was the interview under duress? 
it's it's difficult to know, but he seems sincere. I've looked at other commentators that said he they, they believe that he is uh, sincere. Right. However, as a mercenary, he may not be covered uh, under Geneva Conventions as right. a proper combatant. And again, that's a legal distinction that would have to be flushed out ultimately uh, in some kind of a court of law if it's going to be challenged. So here's the problem with this, though. Um, Andrew Hill uh, might face the death penalty. Now, what does that mean in terms of uh, how the British government would react to that, how the British public would react to that, how our media, what sort of story our media could conjure mm. through a situation like that? Would that be uh, good or bad for generally for the proxy war effort that the UK government has committed to the country to uh, so far? The US has done the same. There's other countries that have also winked and nod, sent foreign fighters uh, in there as well. So let's take a look at, this is, uh, I believe, the ombudsman for uh, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, Daria Morozova. Let's listen to what she has to say uh, just for a minute here, and she'll explain the legal problem here that he's facing. Значит, да, действительно, сейчас на территории Донецкой Народной Республики задержан подданный Великобритании Эндрю Хилл, который приехал сюда в качестве наемника со стороны Украины. К сожалению, это не первый случай, это было и в 2014 году, и в последующих годах, и, соответственно, уже с началом операции. А вот на данный момент ему предъявлены обвинения, ему избрана мера пресечения в виде содержания под стражей. Далее, после завершения всех следственных мероприятий, дело будет передано в суд. После чего будет уже приговор с, скорее всего, обвинительной, поскольку он признался в очень страшных совершенных преступлениях, и будет уже назначено наказание. Согласно национальному законодательству Донецкой Народной Республики, все, кто задерживается, все, кто обвиняются, либо уже осуждены, они могут обратиться в адрес уполномоченного по правам человека. Помимо этого, как и, и я как уполномоченный, и аппарат уполномоченного мониторит их права в местах содержания под стражей, либо колониях, либо ИВС, СИЗО и так далее. Вот. И, соответственно, это распространяется на всех тех граждан, которые сейчас находятся на территории Донецкой Народной Республики. Хочу подчеркнуть, что Донецкая Народная Республика на протяжении 8 лет выстраивала свое правовое государство, и мы двигаемся двигаемся только в направлении с нашим национальным законодательством. Это и Конституция Донецкой Народной Республики, и Уголовно-процессуальный кодекс Донецкой Народной Республики. Он регламентирует все правоотношения между нами, как властями, правоохранительными органами, так и теми людьми, которые задержаны на нашей территории. Поэтому все права, согласно нашим нормативным правовым актам, будут соблюдены с его стороны. Ну, это, конечно, срок наказания, это больше вопрос к судебной системе, потому что будет разбирательство, опять же, будет назначен бесплатный адвокат, если господин Эндрю Хилл захочет какого-то другого адвоката, он не лишен права нанять абсолютно любого юриста, правозащитника, который будет отстаивать его права. В зависимости от тех статей, которые ему предъявили сейчас, мера наказания может быть от 15 лет до высшей меры наказания. Okay, 15 years to capital punishment, there will be a trial? There will be a trial. So I think this is going to generate a lot of media uh, interest and attention uh, in Britain. Uh, and uh, in Plymouth in particular? Yeah, in Plymouth as well. So this is going to be very controversial. Um, this could spark some kind of a diplomatic situation. Certainly there's a chance for some trade or some you know, bilateral negotiations uh, between the DPR and Britain on this. That's a possibility too. We'll see. Well, it depends whether Liz Truss feels any obligation to uh, to 
try to help any of these people? Well, since you brought up uh, Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary, she does bear some of the responsibility for this situation of so many British mercenaries going uh, to Ukraine, because wasn't it Liz Truss who said that uh, the state ha ha has got their back? I think we've got, have we got that yeah, clip? Yeah, we've got that clip. Let's, let's roll that clip. Listen to this. President Zelensky has, has asked for people from abroad to, to join an, an international force. Would you support that? I, I, do, uh, I do support that. And of course, uh, that is something that people can make their own decisions about. But support, they, are, they are fighting. The people of Ukraine are fighting for freedom and democracy, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole of Europe, because that is what President Putin is challenging. And absolutely, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing that. So you support Britain, people from Britain going over to Ukraine to help in the fight? Absolutely, if that's what they want to do. Well, so that's absolutely clear. I was just going to say, is uh, Alex or Vanessa uh, want to comment on that uh, to Alex first? Um, foreign viewers and younger viewers won't get this reference, but um, that uh, Liz Truss should perhaps have put on a big, bushy black Irish beard and said in the Jerry Adams accent, support the armed struggle, and then we got right back to the 1980s. Except when that happened, Adams's words had to be voiced over by an actor. Uh, yes, yeah, I remember indeed. that. Indeed. Uh, Alex, uh, your audio is a bit uh, ropey there, so uh, if you'd like to reconnect, uh, if possible. Vanessa, have you got any thoughts? No, I mean, you know, just when I first uh, saw Liz Truss uh, basically sanctioned uh, mercenaries going to Ukraine, I mean, it conjured up all sorts of uh, legal entanglements that the British government was opening itself to. Because I don't know how that works legally. I mean, effectively, they have said they will support mercenaries that don't come under the Geneva Convention. So I'm, I'm not quite sure to what lengths the British government is going to go to, to take care of those mercenaries that have quite uh, legitimately been arrested by um, members of the Donetsk People's Republic. Yes. I, I don't think you can walk that back. You know, that's, no. that's, that's the top minister uh, in, in the government yes. saying that. And they, they've walked it back or they've tried to walk it back saying, actually, no, we changed our mind. But by that time, people, people have, already, have already self-deployed. So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that one uh, she's going to have to own. And so is the government. Yes. Uh, now, very briefly, uh, let's have a look at what's going on with Wimbledon, because uh, Wimbledon, uh, the, one of the biggest uh, tennis tournaments in the world, uh, has issued a statement. Uh, well, this is back on the 20th of April. Uh, statement regarding Russian and Belarusian individuals at the championships in 2022. And so they said that on behalf of the All England Club and Committee of Management of the championships, we wish to express our ongoing support for those impacted by the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and they went on to say that uh, in the circumstances of such unjustified and unprecedented military aggression, it would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the involvement of Russian and Belarusian players in the championships. Um, uh, but unfortunately, this has uh, gone badly for them uh, because uh, uh, people tweeting out yesterday uh, or today, uh, no, sorry, a couple of days ago, that is, uh, Wimbledon is expected to receive all ranking points removed by the ATP uh, in the next 48 hours if it does not reverse the ban on Russian players. Uh, and uh, all over the media, actually, over the last day or two is this story. But not, nonetheless, a Ukrainian tennis attempted to turn that round. Uh, because it's the players have 
uh, decided, uh, the, the ATP has decided that uh, to support the Russian and uh, Belarusian players, uh, but the Ukrainian tennis authorities decided that this was in fact them supporting Russia. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so Russian Tennis Federation Feder uh, president uh, thanked all the top tennis players supporting the players from Russia amid the Wimbledon ban. Uh, he also said Ukraine's number one is absolutely nobody. Um, and uh, so they were very upset about this. But nonetheless, <laughs> the point here is, Patrick, uh, that this is um, the players supporting other players and saying that this action, this unilateral action by Wimbledon is unacceptable. And I think that's a very interesting pushback. It is. So what Wimbledon did as a tournament, Mike, they went ahead and on their own, thinking that they've got the government and the states back, is let's ban and cancel all Russian and Belarusian players. And a lot of players have stepped up, Novik Djokovic, and I believe Rafael Nadal, and possibly Roger Federer. Um, they haven't made their uh, positions completely public, but it's understood from sources that all of the top players support the interests of all players. In other words, they're not interested in the war, they're not interested in the politics or the policy of the NATO member states. They're supporting uh, the, uh, the, their fellow players. Yes. So, so they're not taking the Russophobic racist position uh, that some states are and that organizations like Wimbledon are, which is basically completely hysterical and reactionary. And guess what? It's going to backfire on them. If they lose their points uh, and their, their ranking uh, for that tournament, it will be relegated from a Grand Slam tournament down to an exhibition match. That's what Wimbledon's looking at. So they've, this is a, to me, this is one of those diplomatic straws that could eventually, uh, one of those ripples that could turn into a wave, Mike. The, the players have shown that uh, the way forward, these athletes, these high-profile yeah. athletes have shown the way forward, and now the pressure and the onus is going to be on our ministers and members of government who have been all gung-ho uh, about the war, and they want to fight the war down to the last Ukrainian. They now have to, to, to answer these players, because these players also represent, I think, the views of a lot of people um, as well. So I think this is huge. This, this is, to me, this is the first real impasse that we have seen on this. Yeah with any major institution in the West. Indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, have a look at uh, over to the United States and uh, money and arms going to Ukraine from there. Yeah, 40 billion. So, you know, homeless uh, uh, skyrocketing in the US, uh, food shortages, but there's 40 billion for Zelensky uh, in Ukraine. But guess what? Rand Paul uh, blocked it uh, yesterday. So temporarily, he's blocking the legislation. He wants to appoint a special auditor uh, to go through everything with a fine-tooth comb to make sure they're not just dumping pallets of cash into Kiev, and it goes into a black, uh, the proverbial black hole. Let's listen to Ram, what Rand Paul says here and why he justified his decision. If this gift to Ukraine passes, our total aid to Ukraine will almost equal the entire military budget of Russia. And it's not as if we have that money lying around. We will have to borrow that money from China to send it to Ukraine. The cost of this package we are voting on today is more than the U.S. spent during the first year of the U.S. conflict in Afghanistan. Congress authorized force, and the president sent troops into the conflict. The same cannot be said of Ukraine. This proposal towers over domestic priorities as well. My oath of office is to the U.S. Constitution, not to any foreign nation, and no matter how sympathetic the cause, my oath of office is to the national security of the United States of America. 
We cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy. In March, inflation hit a 40-year high. Gasoline alone is up 48 percent, and energy prices are up 32 percent. Hard to argue with any of that. Yeah. So come the, come the moment comes the man, Rand Paul is stepping up. So uh, what, what's this going to mean? It could get delayed, okay? This, this funding tranche has bipartisan support. Just put this into perspective. Israel gets about $4 billion uh, a year in U.S. cash for military aid. That's like a decade of money and weapons for someone like Israel. Yeah. No one's ever seen this level of assistance and aid. So really, they're, they're asking the American people to prosecute a war against Russia using Ukraine as a proxy. Rand Paul, hopefully this will inspire other people uh, to do the same. Step up. So we'll put this story up on screen here. And uh, so we'll read the headline to you. Russia looking forward to picking up 40 billion in new equipment after U.S. abandons Ukraine. Now you might be thinking that's a bit of an outrageous uh, headline. And you know what? I wish it was satire, Mike. I wish it was satire. Is it satire? Well, you tell me. I, so I would say, Probably not, because isn't that what they did in Afghanistan? Exactly. That's exactly what I think maybe a little more than 40 billion. Was it the 70 billion? I'm not sure. The Taliban got a nice, mind. Yes. nice windfall for the Taliban. But no, this is the Babylon B, but just, just shows you how difficult it's getting to distinguish between satire and what's real. Yeah, it, well, indeed. Um, okay, Vanessa, uh, let's uh, bring you back on and. Uh, and let's have a look at uh, what's going on with respect to trafficking of people uh, and children in particular in Ukraine. Ah, we've actually lost Vanessa. Reconnect. Um, hopefully, hopefully she will, she will reconnect. But uh, well, okay, we'll, we will we'll skip forward then. And uh, uh, oh, she's back. Excellent. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay, so anyway, look, we, we want to have a, a quick uh, conversation about uh, uh, intra-country adoption and trafficking of children out of Ukraine then. Yeah, um, I mean, basically, uh, this what I've looked at very quickly, because, of course, um, one of the major operations that are ongoing, particularly in conflict areas, are um, organ trafficking, child trafficking, and human trafficking generally. Um, and I've been looking in initially into um, previous inter-country adoption reports on Ukraine in particular. This is from this was published in July 2021, um, but it was actually relating to uh, 2020. Um, this was produced by the U.S. State Department, um, introduced with a letter from Antony Blinken himself. Um, talking about, if, if we go forward, to the uh, inter-country adoption. Now, inter-country adoption is considered particularly by, uh, there's an NGO called Against Child Trafficking, which was established by Roly Post, who had investigated previously the inter-country adoption of orphans from Romania. Um, and, of course, what they object to is the fact that children are treated as commodities, one. Two, it then impedes the um, establishment of a social security structure in the country of origin, um, because of course then it's on focused on a, on a uh, supply and demand market for children, effectively, hence the fact that children become commodities. And effectively they are unprotected in many cases. 
So when we look at the adoptions already in 2020, um, Korea and India and China are quite high on the list, South Korea. But from Ukraine, the highest number of adoptions, 192 finalized abroad. So this is not necessarily to the US, but 19 arrived in the US. In other words, were finalized in 2021, between 2020 and 2021. Um, if Sorry, if you can go forward to the next yes. one, Mike. Um, so let's look at Blinken's letter. Um, dear reader, every child needs and deserves a permanent loving family. But of course, this denies the fact that what is best for the children, according to many experts in this field, is that they, are, they remain in their own culture, in their own uh, country of origin, and they are taken care of there through systems that will enable them to, to flourish in the same way as being adopted by, by a foreign uh, family. The Department of State recognizes that for many children around the world, family reunification or domestic adoption may not be possible, but it doesn't explain why that would not be possible. Um, so he goes on to, to basically promote intercountry adoption, which for the reasons I've mentioned and that are gone into in greater depth by um, the Organization Against Child Trafficking, ACT. Um, and he talks about, um, I think he believes, he talks about the Hague Convention, which effectively supports this idea of intercountry uh, adoption. If we continue, um, so what he then talks about is the fact that under the COVID measures that came into effect in 2020, unfortunately, um, in his uh, parlance, um, the entire uh, process of intercountry adoptions was uh, interrupted and many families awaiting children in the United States, for example, were disappointed. Um, he then goes on to talk about overcoming travel restrictions in a number of countries, including Ukraine, and the departure of four adopted children to the U.S. And he talks about due to close cooperation between the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukrainian border guard officials, and ASP local staff and utilizing a department chartered repatriation flight. So he put on special flights basically for these children to be taken out under COVID restrictions um, and special flights organized by Ukrainian airline. These children arrived to meet their adoptive parents waiting in the United States. So he violated COVID travel restrictions effectively, which were at their strictest um, at the beginning of 2020. And then this is, I'll just quickly refer to my notes here. Um, this is uh, a newsletter put out by the International Reference Center for the Rights of Children Deprived of Their Family. Of course, it doesn't go into any details about why those children are deprived of their family. And again, ACT will argue that quite often um, parents are persuaded or incentivized to release their children for adoption. Um, now, in this report um, from this organization, they talk about the fact that Ukraine has one of the largest populations of children in residential care. In 2020, there were over 700 institutions run by different ministries with a total of 102,570 uh, 102, children in residential care nearly half of them having special needs. 
it goes on to say, in light of the conflict, these figures raise questions, and it's questions that everybody should be raising. Where and with whom are these children now? So clearly, there is a disappearance of children going on as a result of or because of the conflict. Um, within the report, again, they go on to talk about, while this major and unprepared movement across borders, the largest since World War II, has called on rapid response in terms of protection, support, identification, registration, and reunification. It has also raised numerous legal and practical questions, ranging from providing humanitarian relief to ensuring that, despite good intentions, no harm is being done in compliance with international humanitarian law, hence upholding the rights of children, especially those who are deprived, again, this strange language, who are deprived of parental care. Why are they deprived of parental care? What, what measures have been brought to bear upon those parents, as I said, to release those children um, for adoption? And it says, for several weeks, there was unclarity and lack of information about children still or formerly in the Ukrainian care system. So again, we, we have um, an inference that children are going missing in conflict as well as children who were in adoption processes prior to the outburst of the conflict, and children who were or were about to be born to surrogate mothers in Ukraine. So this gives us also an indication of the, the adoption industry that is going on in Ukraine prior to the conflict, and now what is happening as a result of the conflict, although of course this is something that we've seen throughout history when um, the US coalition has uh, incited wars in sovereign nations, we start to see this disappearance of children. Um, and then we come on to very early in uh, the Russian operation, there was an announcement in the Chabad Lubavitch, of course Chabad Lubavitch is one of the most ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish cults, I will call it, uh, in Ukraine. Maybe Alex can, can sort of pop in on this. Um, funded largely, um, or, or their operations are funded largely by Kolomoisky, who of course established Zelensky and funds the Azov Battalion, um, and his Privat Bank, which was used for uh, money laundering, connected of course to Burisma Holdings and, and Hunter Biden, um, is, is what has effectively empowered Chabad Lubavitch that has 10,000 emissaries across a hundred countries globally. Um, some people will say that Hubbard Lubavitch schools are dangerous areas, they're cultish organizations um, that are used to brainwash the children that are brought into these institutions. And very early on um, in the conflict, as I said, we saw Hubbard Lubavitch uh, taking children from an orphanage in Odessa to Germany, traveling through, I think it was uh, seven countries to, to arrive there. So for me, although I can't categorically say this is child trafficking, it must raise some questions about why children are being taken from orphanages in Ukraine that were not under direct attack um, to Germany very, very early on in the contract, in the conflict, sorry and um, why there are these questions being raised about dis the disappearance of children. Yeah, and uh, Alex, uh, do you have any thoughts on, on what Vanessa just said? 
Sorry, Alex, we, we can't we can't hear you at all at the moment. Um, so uh, I don't know whether you want to uh, try to reconnect. I will change the, I will change the uh, sound. Yeah, well, look, we're going to have to we're going to have to move on with that. We'll we'll come back to to uh, Alex's uh, next point in a second. Uh, but Vanessa, uh, let's just uh, move move to Syria now, uh, and uh, and what's going on in the northeast of the country because uh, this is really falling under the radar, I think, uh, in the UK at least. Yeah. Absolutely, I mean, it's falling under everyone's radar. I think this was just a little report put out in Reuters. Um, U.S. to allow foreign investment in northeast Syria without sanction. Um, the uh, acting assistant secretary of state, um, Victoria Newland, who of course had no small role to play in the 2014 U.S.-U.K.-Israeli managed coup in uh, in Ukraine, is talking about lifting or, or creating a license to lift the sanctions on a particularly um, reconstruction projects and agricultural projects, they do claim that the oil industry is, is not included in these licenses, but I mean, it's hardly as if they need to. The oil is already under their occupation, Syrian oil is under their occupation. And of course, it's being uh, traded by their various proxies, including ISIS, um, the Kurdish Contras, and Al-Qaeda that are processing the oil. Um, so. What is this? It's talking about reconstruction and it's talking about agriculture. So effectively, this is settlement by proxy in northeast Syria, which of course is in line um, with Zionist plans to take the territory east of the Euphrates. But the worrying thing is it's also, the license has also been approved for Turkish militia, um, which are dominated and controlled by Al-Qaeda in the northern border territories, which sort of... Um, uh, are, are neighboring the areas controlled by the Kurdish Contras. So here we have effectively settlement, annexation of Syrian territory, so annexation of the territory of a sovereign nation while they are claiming that Russia is invading a sovereign nation that has been a vassal state of NATO member states since 2014, if not before. Um, but here they are effectively, as I said, annexing Syrian territory that they already illegally occupy and enabling uh, the building of settlement on that territory that has been ethnically cleansed by US proxies, whether it is ISIS, the Kurdish Contras, or uh, the Turkish backed militia, um, euphemistically called the Free Syrian Army, but which we know are under the control of Al Qaeda and affiliates. Yeah. Any thoughts? Um, no, just back to uh, a question, quick question for Vanessa, just back to the Ukrainian mm -hmm. child trafficking uh, story. It, Vanessa, do you think it's feasible or po possible that um, the wave of refugees going over the border into Poland, that that was just seen by traffickers as, as a great opportunity to move as many uh, kids or, you know, under the cover of this refugee crisis, maybe? I think you always have to... to look at refugee crises through this prism. You know, we, we know that those that, um, let's say, support child trafficking, whether it is legalized under intercountry adoptions or legitimized, um, or whether it is criminal uh, child trafficking, human trafficking, 
it is facilitated by open borders. And as soon as you have a refugee crisis, of course, the calls come in for open borders. There are far less checks of children entering alone without adult supervision, without their parents and without their family. And we know from the Syrian conflict that huge numbers of children have gone missing, for example, in Germany, which made me immediately suspicious when I saw that these orphans were being transported, when at that point, actually, Odessa was not under attack as such. Um, and yet it was considered for their safety to remove them from Ukraine and take them to Germany and put them into the Chabad uh, Lubavitch schools there. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you at least have to be asking those questions. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that, uh, Alex. Uh, let's let's see whether this is uh, working now. Um, and uh, uh, Ian Davis has a new article up on the UK Column website. Yes, I'm hoping that the microphone is now back to normal. And uh, Ian Davis has just published. Uh, though superstitious might not like the dateline of Friday the 13th, but uh, he has, or rather, we have just published uh, his uh, previous previously submitted article a long-form article asking the question of the last couple of months, really, since the late spring uh, or early spring uh, Russian offensive began, does Ukraine need to be denazified? The image that we've uh, taken as stock photo for the article is way back in 2014 during the Euromaidan revolution or coup or revolution of dignity, if you uh, are with the, the on-message Western media crowd. And that is some uh, gentlemen who are tooled up at the Maidan Independence Square in Kiev, holding the red and white, sorry, red, red and black with white lettering banner of the right sector, Pravi sector, and the uh, the trident uh, logo in the middle, which is very similar to the Ukrainian national coat of arms. Uh, Ian is uh, really taking a tour at just the right level of detail for newcomers to the subject, uh, but connoisseurs will also be interested here of what's been going on since the Second World War, and uh, in that. He has uh, really recapitulated what he has said to a number of good uh, interviewers. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he has, among others, appeared on TNT Radio's excellent Jesse Zurawell, uh, who has uh, a, a show called Dispatches. Um, so that's well worth uh, catching up on. He's talking about the better known period at the beginning of this uh, Ukrainian ultranationalist movement in the early stages of the Second World War uh, under the leadership of Stepan Bandera. First. So this is where the um, accurate uh, insult of Banderites comes from. Uh, he talks about the massacre of Jews, uh, just harking back to what Vanessa said, uh, by the way, and then as now, there have been some ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews or, or those claiming that others who are perfectly content to see their co-religionists uh, die for some greater cause. Well, in those days, it was the Lviv ghetto uh, that was uh, subjected to pogroms. In fact, it wasn't even a ghetto by that stage. The Jews of Lviv were well integrated, and it was the precursors of today's Ukrainian Nazis who liquidated them, uh, uh, threatening in a pamphlet, we will lay your heads at Hitler's feet. This was the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, of whom Bandera ran the lesser grouping, but the more radical grouping, and this is a thing which is now seen today, the more extreme uh, of the Ukrainian nationalists and Nazis really are the smaller groups, but those with the more, with the greater fear factor to steer the um, uh, the course of politics. From that era, Ian uh, brings out research by Professor Inka on the Babi uh, Alex, Mac Alex, sorry, I'm sorry that, that your mic is just getting worse and worse as you speak. So I'm afraid we're going to have to, we're going to have to just, uh, 
come back to this at a later time. Yeah, we can also continue uh, uh, developing this on Monday and Wednesday. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm I'm sorry about that, Alex. Uh, well, look, uh, it is uh, twenty past two. We want to do an extra this afternoon, so so we'll probably uh, leave the news there for today. But I think we had uh, something to finish off with, Patrick. Oh, I thought we. Yeah, we always like to leave uh, on a on a high note, and a lot of fans out there of the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau certainly are. Our readership and viewership are big fans of Justin Trudeau. So we want to give everybody an update on what Trudeau is doing in Europe. Uh, and here we'll put this up on screen here. This is basically, yes, Trudeau takes Europe. And here he is talking to his military uh, advisors here. I want to take selfies here, here, and here. There's his son looking uh, on the background there. So it's good to know that Justin Trudeau has got a handle on the situation yes. uh, in Europe there. Yes. Okay. Well, look, look uh, sorry about Alex's uh, technical problems there. We'll have to leave it there for today. Um, we will be back in a few minutes uh, on the main live stream for some extra. Uh, and uh, we will be uh, uh, back. What day is this? Friday. Yes, it's, it becomes a blur. Uh, we'll be back as usual on Monday. So uh, hopefully if you, you will have a great weekend and we will see you then. But if you're a UK column member, please stay with us for some extra. Okay, bye bye.